Hi, I'm Rebecca Lauderdale. I'm an internal medicine doctor in the Deep South, and I'm on a mission to make this statement true. Women physicians flourish. During my experience of burnout years ago, when not many people were paying attention to physician burnout, I eventually found my way and learned to flourish. I created this podcast to bring you the things that helped me most. The science, the stories, the people, and the evidence-based practices that will help you if you're struggling. Because the world needs doctors like you to not just be free of burnout, but to flourish. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming back for episode two. Uh, This is the Women Physicians Flourish podcast, and I'm Rebecca Lauderdale. Before getting started on this episode, a quick disclaimer. I am a medical doctor, but I'm not your medical doctor. So this program is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, though I may talk about Uh, medical interventions or mental health interventions. This is not a substitute for uh, the advice of your doctor. Um, And so this program is not intended to provide medical advice. And also the views expressed here are my own. They are not those of my employer necessarily, nor of any hospital or healthcare system. So this episode is going to be some more foundational material that I think is absolutely required for you to understand before we go further. I want you to at least start to turn it over in your head and consider the evidence that what I'm saying is true. And you still might benefit from the practices I talk about later on, but there will be a limit to how helpful they'll be if you don't really grasp this first part in these first two episodes. You might just need to ponder this self-love and compassion stuff for a little while. I told you last episode that I'm committed to giving you actionable, evidence-based things you can do to heal burnout and to flourish, but these first two episodes focus on some concepts that you really need to understand first. This whole process is not a to-do list. It's a lifelong practice of cultivating what we want and letting go of what we don't. It's not a race, though I know I've felt that way before. I felt like I was in so much pain and discomfort that that I needed to urgently fix something. I promise we're going to get there. So last episode, I introduced you to Brene Brown's wholehearted people, those people in her study cohorts that were so different from the others because they were uninhibited by fears of rejection or shame, and they instead live in this freedom and openness. They were creative and innovative and had incredible relationships. They were flourishing. Last episode, we also talked about how the key difference between these wholehearted people and the other people in Dr. Brown's data was that wholehearted people had self-love. And I ended that episode with the hope that if you're one of those people like I used to be, that maybe I put a little crack in your shell and made you at least start considering that self-love is not some woo, new age concept, but it's an imperative if you want to lead a fulfilling life. I've said the word flourishing several times and it's in my title, so I think it's important to take a minute to make sure that I give a clear definition that's also in line with the current psychology literature 
there's been some development of this concept over time, particularly in the past five or 10 years. And a lot of the research has been done by Martin Seligman. He's a doctor of psychology, and he founded the field of positive psychology and the department by that name at Penn State. I used to think that positive psychology was synonymous with pop psychology, that it was just kind of some bogus stuff that self-help authors made up. (laughs) But when I was looking for ways to be more happy and more fulfilled in my life, I looked at this research and realized that it was quite rigorous. There's a, there's a real, there's real science here. Um, Though it is still a relatively new field. Um, Dr. Seligman first put forth what he called happiness theory that within just a few years he revised. He said that it was too one-dimensional, is not a full description of how humans choose their best courses in life. He talks about this in his book called Flourishing. It focuses on well-being theory and research that um, he and others have done about well-being. He says that happiness isn't the be-all and end-all of well-being and isn't necessarily its best measure. So positive psychology is not happyology. Um, Dr. Seligman talks about three different types of lives, kind of life purposes that um, are in an ascending order of flourishing and life satisfaction. The first is, he calls it the pleasant life. So that's, you know, as many pleasures as possible and focuses on learning the skills that amplify those pleasures. The main drawback in, um, if you were to focus on this sort of life, if you were to focus on giving people this kind of life and, and teaching them how to do it, would be that the experience of positive emotion is 50% heritable and it and pleasure habituates really quickly. Um, so it, you can only make like a 5 to 10% change here um, in, in experimental data uh, with different interventions. Then the, the second one, um, slightly above that one, the pleasant life, is called the good life. Having experiences of flow. Um, you all may be aware of that term um, as being something that describes being completely immersed in an experience, uh, being unaware of time passing, and just being um, totally engaged. So he, he equates these two terms, flow and engagement, and knowing what your highest strengths are, and then recrafting your life around those strengths to use them as much as you can helps bring engagement and flow into your life. Then there's the third type of life, the one that's the highest life satisfaction. He calls it the meaningful life. And that involves knowing your highest strengths and using them in the service of something larger than yourself. So these aren't, um, these aren't just theoretical categories that he made up. These are in the data associated with life satisfaction. So in these three types of lives, rates of life satisfaction are are almost not related at all to pursuit of pleasure. Where pleasure matters is if you have both engagement and meaning. Pleasure is kind of like the icing on the cake, and you get more of it than if it were just experienced alone without engagement and meaning. So Seligman has this acronym for the components of well-being, PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. 
He talks about it like a dashboard. Um, the more important gauges on the dashboard will be different depending on an individual's preferences. So different people will prioritize them differently and at different times in their lives. So these elements are things that free people will choose to do for their own sake and not in order to get more of something else. The skills of well-being can be taught and learned and transformative. When working with increasing well-being, the point's not to change what people value, but to help them maximize the things that they do value. So those, those five elements, P-E-R-M-A, PERMA, um, the P is positive emotion. So happiness and life satisfaction are aspects of this. It's highly heritable, more than 50%. So if you set out to change people's subjective feelings, again, like how merry they are, how happy they are, you only have about a 5 to 15% leeway for changing it. The E is engagement or flow. This is when time stops. People in flow don't report feeling a lot of emotion or even awareness of their cognition. They just have this feeling of immersing, being immersed in the activity. So that could be with people, with work. Um, and research has shown that this element can be improved by identifying your greatest strengths and then consciously engaging in work and activities that utilize those strengths. Then the R in PERMA is relationships. So like I mentioned earlier, we have a need for connection, love, physical and emotional contact with others. We enhance our own well-being by building strong networks of relationships around us. So research shows that happiness shared is happiness squared. When we share our joy with people, we feel even more joy. And when we love other people, we become more lovable. So there's a positive feedback loop. We also depend on the people around us to help us maintain balance in our lives. When we're alone too much, we lose perspective. And when we let other people in, it, it helps us to keep a better perspective on the world. And we have a network of support. The M in PERMA is meaning and purpose. Your why. So believing that you serve a purpose larger than yourself. Meaning is really important in group settings. Um, there's a study that Adam Grant did on worker productivity. Um, they had a group of people who were doing fundraising calls. They were doing cold calls. And the degree to which they, um, they could understand and feel the meaning, the benefit to what they were doing to how they were raising what they were raising money for was directly related to the actual amount of productivity and money that they raised. Um, so from day to day, if we believe that our work is worthwhile, we feel a general sense of sense of well-being and confidence that we're using our time and our abilities for good. And second only to relationships, this aspect contributes most to global well-being scores. And then the A, the, la the last one in PERMA, is accomplishment. Also, achievement or mastery. Those kind of um, all go together. Creating and working toward goals. It helps us anticipate and build hope for the future. Um, past successes make us feel more confident and optimistic about the future attempts that we might make. Um, when you feel good about yourself, you're more likely to share your skills and secrets with others. So that sense of accomplishment has a feedback into your relationships. 
Um, so that's the PERMA acronym, the positive emotion, engagement and flow, relationships, meaning and purpose, and accomplishment, achievement, mastery. Um, that Those are the components of flourishing. There's also been some discussion in the literature about possibly adding health, freedom, and responsibility as components, but that's not necessarily agreed upon by everyone. There's definitely agreement that flourishing and well-being are not simply the absence of pathology. It means something different, and there are different skills required to get there. There's also agreement that well-being can be built. People can improve their well-being tremendously. These are skills that it takes conscious effort um, to acquire. In Brene Brown's work that I've already spoken about a good bit, those wholehearted people are people who are flourishing. These are, these are basically this, this is the same group. Those people feel a sense of love and belonging in their lives. And the only thing that differentiates them from people who don't feel love and belonging in their lives is that they believe they're worthy of it. So I'm going to repeat that because when I first really understood this, it felt like it was a geological shift. The only difference between people who feel a deep sense of love and belonging in their lives and those who don't is that they believe they're worthy of that love and belonging. They don't have some special set of pre-existing physical characteristics or life experiences or innate personality traits. They don't have a certain set of resources provided to them. It's not a belief that you're better than other people, but the simple belief that you deserve love and belonging just as much as anybody else on the planet. And when you can do that, you can move mountains. I know we don't talk about this a lot in medicine. I can't really, I can't think of any professors or attendings in my training. And that was back in the early 2000s. Um, none of them directly addressing self-care or self-love or even really about loving patients. Um, I did definitely have attendings who demonstrated a love for patients. And those people made a, a really big impact on me. But we didn't often directly address happiness or well-being in ourselves or our patients. It was just about fixing pathology. And maybe that's partly because there wasn't a lot of data or science for them to refer to. Again, this is a pretty new field. They didn't know the stuff that I'm talking about today. So bringing it up as part of a curriculum may have felt like it was too woo or soft or anecdotal. But who of us is willing to live our lives without including love and fulfillment as a major part of our goals? I'm certainly not, and I bet you're not either. Love, belonging, and significance are irreducible needs. They've been built into us over millions of years, and we're not getting away from it anytime soon. I kind of had hoped that I could get away from that <laughs> years ago. Um, and again, you know, listening to self-help authors and things, people say, love yourself. I, that just was never enough for me. Um, some of the things that really worked on me the most were, like I already mentioned, Brene Brown's work and the, the evidence. Um, Edward O. Wilson, the renowned biologist, 
um, who is just um, a real role model and kind of hero to me, contemporary of Carl Sagan. They won the Pulitzer Prize um, for their books just a year apart, uh, the first Pulitzer Prizes that they each got. Um, But Edward O. Wilson's work founded the field of evolutionary psychology and um, social biology. He's written about this for 50 years, the social nature of um, beings on our planet, animals and humans. And in some of his more recent works, he's discussed the things learned in his field in some really beautiful ways, speaking to our need for meaning and creative expression and connection to others and how science and the humanities really need each other. In his book called The Meaning of Human Existence, it was published in 19, not 19, 2014, (laughs) he lays out a case um, that does a really good job of kind of finishing off that selfish gene theory. Humans did not become humans by only looking out for number one. Actually, you could really say we didn't even become human until we grew a brain big enough to allow us to become unselfish, to think beyond our own personal best interest and act for the good of a group. The whole reason we became as powerful as we are as a species is that we evolved to form groups where altruism was required from at least some members and where meaningful relationships were formed. Now, that's not to say that we don't need independence and autonomy as well, or that humans never do anything selfish. That's the million-year-old tension, this need for significance that we have, the desire to be something special, to have a unique value, to create things on our own, but then also to have connection and be part of something larger than ourselves, to be part of a group. Dr. Wilson says it may even be that the particular level of intelligence humans have may only be achievable in creatures that are social, that have it, that don't just have the pressure of natural selection, but this group selection and cultural selection that builds on top of that, that accelerates intelligence. So that's really meaningful to me to understand that there is a, there are some really clear built-in reasons why this is so important. So back to our study cohort from Brene Brown's work, people who flourish, feel love, belonging, and significance. It's how they're free to take leaps and are able to be vulnerable enough to create and take calculated risks in order to grow. Wholehearted people who believe they're worthy of love and belonging have courage to create and to innovate and reimagine themselves because they aren't cur- they're not constantly afraid of losing their worthiness if they step out of line. To use Dr. Brown's term, they're not hustling for their worthiness. Belonging is a huge part of innovation and creativity. You don't take risks if you don't feel safe with your tribe. You'll keep living within little boundaries that you draw for yourself. The other part of this that was especially um, important to me as a parent is that when you feel worthy, you can love other people in a completely different way because you can truly believe that they deserve your love and belonging with you and with your group, 
whoever that is, just by being who they are without needing to change. And that's almost impossible if you don't believe it about your own self. Um, You'll just kind of constantly be doing um, managing your kids to make sure that they're worthy, that they meet the standards of your group, whatever those are, to keep the group happy. So if instead of feeling worthy, you're in this state of not enoughness, a feeling lacking. What happens when you start to venture out and just imagine believing that you're worthy of love and belonging, that you are enough? Enoughness is it's really hard to do in, in our society, in America right now, probably just about anywhere in the world. We live in a culture that basically trains it out of us from childhood. It takes about 30 seconds of looking at social media, probably less, to see this really plainly. And if your parents or the adults in your life who raised you didn't do this internal work, they didn't know how to, so they didn't truly believe they deserved love and belonging, then they couldn't teach it to you. And even if they did, you can still fall victim to the surrounding culture. Add insult to injury and then go to medical school. And residency, where you're taught the hidden curriculum, right? Then practice medicine. Not enough sleep, not enough money, not the right weight, not good, a good enough mother, not a good enough wife, not tough enough. Your notes aren't thorough enough, but your notes are too long. You need too much sleep. You're not fast enough. You're not contributing enough. You're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough. If you're in that space right now where those things really ring true for you, you're not alone. Um, And you can get out from under the mountain of the shame and the not enoughness, I promise. I'm here on this podcast to get you out of it, to help you get yourself out. Um, Because you can. You can have a joyful and meaningful life. It might be hard to imagine right now. But I've lived this, and so have a lot of other people. And there's most definitely light at the end of, t- end of the tunnel for you. When I was pregnant with my oldest child, my daughter, who's almost 20 now, um, she was breech presentation, and we couldn't get her to turn. So we found out like two days before uh, she was born that I needed to have a C-section. So we had kind of a semi-planned surgical delivery, but we, did, we only had a day or two notice. I remember that night, like a day and a half before she was born, sitting with my husband in a, uh, one of our favorite local restaurants, and I was waiting for my food, <laughs> and I was just suddenly gripped by this quiet, creeping panic, knowing that this child was going to be in the world in a day and a half, and I was responsible for her human life. And I felt this urge to just jump up and run away. (laughs) But I knew that would be silly, right? Because she would just be coming right along with me. And I didn't really want to run because though it was a big responsibility, it was huge and sometimes overwhelming. It was beautiful and wonderful and a million times worth it. So I'm telling you the story because when I first read these concepts in, um, you know, first in Brene Brown's work, I literally had the same urge to just jump up and run away 
the thought of all the work that I needed to do, um, all the things that I needed to change. But I realized all my problems would just be coming right along with me wherever I am, wherever I had, wherever I tried to hide. I was going to have to learn to do it. It was going to be a little bit scary and sometimes overwhelming. But I sensed the potential for a change that was so big and so meaningful and joyful that I knew I had to do it. I had to try. Um, but again, I, you know, it's, this isn't, this isn't something you can do on your own. Um, so maybe the bravest, at least one of the bravest things I've ever done was to ask seven other people, people I considered friends and I knew were safe people. Um, I asked as vulnerably as I knew how, which probably just seemed like desperation at the time. I didn't have a lot of experience with being vulnerable at that point. Um, I asked them to to start meeting with me and work through this stuff because I didn't know how to do it alone. And even though I would have preferred it, you know, that I could have done it alone, I, I knew I knew I couldn't. Um, I felt like the whole ground had just dropped out from underneath me and I needed support, but I really didn't have a support system of friends already. Um, I had wanted it all my life, but because of some crappy childhood experiences when I was young, I had bought into this story that friendships of the kind I wanted, those deep and meaningful ones, just weren't for people like me. They were for other people, people who were enough in ways that I wasn't, but I really didn't know why. I just accepted it like it was some law of the universe. So my behavior had just perpetuated that cycle. So these seven people, these absolute badasses, they all said yes. They, they came and they started meeting with me. That was in 2014. And we've been together meeting regularly ever since. A few of them have moved away over those years and we've added a few to our group. Uh, we keep up a group chat in between meetings for sharing things like successes and wins. But also if we find ourselves find ourselves in shame and we need a place to talk about it. We have kept our group chat going through hurricanes and tornadoes in the middle of the night, <laughs> through engagements and marriages and career changes. I think every one of us has had a pretty dramatic job change during the time we've been in the group and most of us credit the work we've done together and the support from our group with feeling empowered to make those changes. I know that was definitely true for me. And we've been together through illnesses and deaths of people that we love. Um, some of us even got together and gave a couple talks at a festival two years ago about our group and how we did it and how transformative it's been so that we could teach other people how. These women in my group, one man in the beginning, but unfortunately he moved to Austin, Texas, um, so we don't get to see him as much. But these women have helped me learn in a safe place what real friendship and belonging are. And I've been able to take that out into all the other parts of my life. It's affected everything. I'm so grateful to them for taking that leap with me. And here's the truth. You can have that too. You're worthy of love and belonging. You need people in your life who can say, you can say, I'm a mess too. And know that you'll get empathy and encouragement and support. 
or who you can say, look, I'm a badass. And they can say, yes, you are, and have a spontaneous disco party. Um, you deserve that. Uh, I got to be careful with the word deserve. I'll save that for another podcast, but suffice to say, I think we mostly use it as a weapon, and I'm really careful about that word. But you deserve love and belonging and goodness in your life. Just as you are, no changes necessary. The key is learning to believe that you're enough. And some of the work of eliminating that feeling of not enoughness and introducing more of the idea that you are enough will have to happen in relationship with other people. So between now and the next podcast, think about who you might be able to bravely ask for support from to invite into a new and beautiful role in your life. Simple, maybe not easy, but it's proven in the data. It works. The next episode, we're going to talk about the inner critic and some really exciting ways you can change your whole self through working with your inner dialogue. That's not an exaggeration. I'm so glad that you came back for this episode. I hope you'll tune in with me next time for the Women Physicians Flourish podcast. In the meanwhile, you can find me at Lauderdale on Instagram. I've got links in my bio to lots of things. Or you can go to my website at www.rebeccalauderdalemd.com and sign up for my email list. I'll send you a couple exercises for working with your inner critic. I welcome... Um, direct messages through Instagram or email, get in touch with me. I really would love to hear um, your feedback. So until next time, here's a poem by Mary Oliver. She's my favorite poet. And this is a poem called The Journey that I think speaks beautifully to this journey that we're all on. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop, you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. Much love, friends. Until next time.